Hello and welcome to Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, the podcast collaboration between myself and the smart thinkers of Pan Macmillan. Self-awareness is important. Recently, I walked past a building site and the builders laughed and pointed and wolf whistled and I wondered why until I realised that my skirt was tucked into my knickers. So with that in mind, my guest today is Dr. Tasha Urick, author of the new book, Insight. Tasha is an organisational psychologist, researcher and New York Times best-selling author. Over her 15-year career, she's helped thousands of professionals improve their self-awareness and success and she's also been named one of the top 100 thought leaders currently working in America. We're lucky enough to have her here with us today to read an exclusive extract from her new book. So with no further ado, here's Tasha Urick on Insight. The toughest coaching session of my professional career began with me staring for what seems like an eternity at the top of a senior executive's bald head. That head belonged to Steve, a construction company boss with a bleeding balance sheet. He'd been in the job for just four months when his CEO asked me to come and help him. That morning, I'd taken the elevator to the eighth floor, waited in the reception area, and was finally shown to Steve's palatial office by an assistant whose voice shook slightly when she announced me. As the door closed silently behind me, Steve didn't look up from his computer, acknowledging my presence only with a long sigh and an aggressive flurry of mouse clicks, which left me standing there, awkwardly staring at his head and admiring the contents of a presentation cabinet. It included a large award in the shape of a demolition ball, and that really said a lot about the situation. I'm not easily unnerved, but as the seconds dragged by, I began to feel the challenge that lay ahead of me as a sensation of mild nausea. It didn't help that I was holding a red folder bulging with my interview notes that told me just how volatile this man could be. Should I take a seat? I finally ventured. Please, Dr. Urich, he sighed impatiently, still not looking up. Whatever makes you comfortable. As I sat down and opened my folder, ready to begin, Steve pushed his chair back. Finally, he looked at me. Let me tell you a thing or two about my operation here. Then, with the restlessness of a caged tiger, he began pacing up and down behind his desk, sharing his ambitious vision for the business and his hardball leadership philosophy. I was impressed with his energy. I also knew that our work together would require all he could muster. Steve's department, he told me, was in trouble, although I already knew that. His predecessor had been fired because of cost overruns, so his in-the-red business unit needed to drive growth while finding efficiencies wherever possible. There was no room for failure, but Steve had no doubt that he was just the man for the task. His self-proclaimed leadership skills included setting high expectations, rallying his troops, and being tough but fair. I know I'll face challenges in this role, he confidently stated, but I also know how to get the best out of my people. Unfortunately, Steve was totally delusional. What I'd uncovered when I interviewed his direct reports and what his CEO had only begun to sense was that Steve's reign was already proving disastrous. In the 16 weeks since his official promotion, three employees had already quit. A fourth, who had recently started taking blood pressure medicine because of the Steve stress, was halfway out the door. Though not a single member of Steve's team questioned his capabilities and experience, they thought he was, to use a more polite term than they did, a complete jerk. He'd bark orders at them, 
question their competence and scream at them in a way they found unprofessional and frightening. And they weren't a bunch of whiners either. I found them to be seasoned, seen-it-all types who weren't looking to be coddled. Steve had simply pushed them too far. To be fair, Steve had grown up in a rough-and-tumble industry of construction, where he'd learned that great leadership often meant he who yelled the most. And while this hard-charging style may have been passable in the past, it was a costly miscalculation in his current role, especially against the backdrop of the company's collaborative culture. As he paced around his new office, proudly detailing all of the ways he was exactly the visionary leader his company needed, I marveled at how utterly oblivious he was. His behavior was hurting his employees' morale, his team's performance, and his own reputation. And somehow, I had to find a way to break that to him. I knew that Steve would be one of my greatest professional challenges, though he certainly wasn't my first. After all, a central part of my job is often to tell senior executives the truth when everyone else is afraid to or doesn't know how. And I'm proud to report that I've only been fired once for it. In so doing, I've found that with some effort, delusion can usually be overcome, and even the most unseeing can learn to open their eyes. Sometimes they just need a little shove. In Steve's case, I was that shove, and it was going to have to be an unusually forceful one. Before we could begin to deal with his willful resistance to self-improvement, I first had to tackle his willful resistance to let me get a word in edgewise. I decided that a direct approach was necessary. With his diatribe showing no sign of losing wind, I locked eyes with him until he finally stopped. Steve, I said, there's no way around this. Your team hates you. He wouldn't have looked more shocked if I'd stood on my chair and claimed to be his long-lost daughter. Glancing at my folder of research, he asked, What did they say about me? I had no choice but to tell him. And since his team had warned me about his temper, I was prepared for what came next. The raised voice, the clenched jaw, the menacing stares, the vein in his neck. And right there across the desk, Steve's face was turning bright red. How could they say those things about me? How could they say that I yell? Then, as if exhausted by his own delusion, he slumped in his chair and gazed out the window for a good minute. The last time Steve had been silent, it had been an attempt to demonstrate the power he believed he had over me. But this silence had an altogether different quality. So, he said at last, swiveling his chair toward me with an expression of calm intention. I've been doing these things for the last four months, or 20 years, and nobody told me? Indeed, rather than face his harsh reality, he'd chosen the path of blissful ignorance, which is easier in the moment, and it works just fine, until it doesn't. This is what I had to help Steve understand, and I knew we had our work cut out for us. We reviewed his feedback for hours. At first, he was resistant, searching for any excuse to counter the criticism. But to his great credit, he slowly started to accept what he was hearing. By the end of our first session, I was seeing a new side of him. I've never questioned my leadership approach, he told me. Not for years, anyway. Why would I? Everything's always been pretty great. But the last couple of months, something has felt off. I didn't know what it was. Results haven't been what I was expecting, 
and the worst thing is, it's following me home. He smiled ruefully. The good news, I told him, is that these problems are totally fixable. And you've just taken a major step. Really? What did I do? He exhaustedly inquired. I grinned. You just accepted reality. Indeed, the commitment to learn and accept reality is one of the most significant differences between the self-aware and, well, everybody else. The self-aware exert great effort to overcome their blind spots and see themselves as they really are. Through examining our assumptions, constantly learning, and seeking feedback, it's possible to overcome a great many barriers to insight. Although it would be unreasonable to expect that we can see or eliminate our blind spots altogether, we can assemble and gather data that helps us see ourselves and the impact of our behavior far more clearly. The Terror of Bold Steve. Uh, in an extract from Tasha Urich's book, Insight, I'm delighted to say I have Tasha here with me in the studio. I know. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for doing this. Um, that sounds like a terrifying situation. Uh, but also, at, at the start of the book, you use a pretty arresting tale of a hubristic colonel who sort of steams into the valley of death undeterred by advice, which reminds me a bit of Steve there. So just to begin with, can you tell us a bit about the difference between self-awareness and self-delusion basically oh they couldn't be more different they're they're opposite sides of the spectrum people who are uh delusional and i use that term somewhat dramatically but often quite appropriately have absolutely no idea who they are what they want or how they come across to others and quite often just like steve they are uh blissfully ignorant about the role they play in the world and quite often, even though they start out this way, I've seen so many people and I've studied so many people who have made the leap from self-delusion to self-awareness. Self-awareness is the opposite. It's understanding um, on one level who we are internally as well as how other people see us. And those two pieces are often independent. So what I've found in my research is that some people can, for example, think they're completely in touch with their inner selves and have absolutely no idea how they come across to others. Or they might be so interested in how they come across to others that they're not making decisions in service of their mm. happiness or their success. And so self-awareness is really those two pieces of information. Once we have them, that's what unlocks a lot of the really incredible um, impact our, on our success and our happiness and even our self-confidence that self-awareness can bring. Because is that then internal and external awarenesses? Is that basically what you've just described? So that's interesting to me because the idea that you can be very aware of what other people might think of you, or perhaps hyper aware of it, too aware of it to the extent that you don't act appropriately for what's best for yourself. Is that one of the things that you're talking about? Mm -hmm, it is. And and I was very surprised, to be honest. Um as an aside, there were there were so many things that I was surprised to find in our data, and that was one of the first. I, I thought that if you understood yourself, naturally you would understand how you come across to other people. But more often than not, um, people either have neither of those types of knowledge or they have one, but only having one is a little bit dangerous. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like it. And, and So is, is that one of the, the, the sort of big um, sort of, 
keys to becoming a, a generally happier person is finding out, sitting for a moment and really thinking about about goals. Why are goals so important? In the book, I talk about this idea. Um, it's a bit of a myth that if we just sit and ponder our inner self or our inner truth or, or our subconscious, that we will magically become self-aware. But the research has actually shown the opposite. The, mo- the less we navel gaze and the more we focus on the future and what we're trying to accomplish, often the more self-aware we become. And that's one of the myths. It it was something that it wasn't just me that found that, but researchers for literally decades have shown that when we when we get too involved in self-analysis, it actually obscures our vision of ourselves. And so one way to clarify that is to look forward in a more um, solution and action focused way. Because it's you you talk about the difference between rumination Mm -hmm. and, and, and actually, you know, sort of introspection there's, there's a big difference there isn't there just sitting and can, being a little bit too worried about what other people think exactly that, rumination that can cripple you a little bit can't it can it? and and so many of us do it without knowing it and sometimes even when we do know it we think it's productive so i think everybody's been in a situation where you you say something you wish you wouldn't have said or you make a mistake you wish you wouldn't have made and then it eats away at you and you can't stop thinking about it or replaying it or you know thinking how how embarrassing it was. And those types of conversations we have with ourselves sometimes feel productive. You, you feel like, well, if I can just get to the root of what went wrong in this situation, then I will finally understand how to be better. But um, what the research has shown is if you if you instead focus your attention on what's next. So what am I going to do about this? What will I do next time I'm in this situation? That's far more productive. Now, one of the things that I really love about the book is is this that you talk about um, that one of the problems in the modern world is that we're encouraged to think about ourselves a bit too much. You call it the cult of the self. In fact, the uh, you know the sort of the, the cover of the book uh, shows a selfie stick, uh, and it's one of the great blocks to self knowledge. Um, can you is that something that's that, that that social media has not helped? Basically, oh, social media has made it so much worse. There, you know, if we sort of think about the trajectory, you know, from the 1900s until now, what we saw was, you know, for a very long time in the early part of the 20th century, this focus on effort and hard work and diligence and humility, and with the introduction of the self-esteem movement, which is actually goes as far back as the 1950s, it was this idea that, um, to vastly oversimplify it, you don't have to be great if you can just feel great. And that sounds like a lovely idea, but obviously it uh, has so many hidden pitfalls. And me and others have found in our research that um, the more we're inclined to just think we're great in the absence of humility and diligence and actually work, um, it really can hurt us. And it doesn't just hurt our self-knowledge, but it hurts our success and our happiness and our relationships. But since the self-esteem movement um, really has just keeps picking up steam, social media was introduced. And there's so much research that shows not just that we, that people who are narcissistic use social media more, but that the reverse is also true. So when we use social media, we have almost immediate increases in our level of narcissism. And I, I personally find that stunning. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's one of those problems that, that especially baby boomers and Gen Xers love to blame on millennials. But really, it's affecting us all. You know, 
almost everyone has a Facebook account. Almost yeah. everyone is on social media in some way. And so I think it's a, it's a pretty big societal problem um, really around the world. Yeah, because I suppose before social media and Facebook and Twitter and things like that, you know, it was it was much easier to have a contained sense of self, wasn't it? And, and self-aggrandizement mm-hmm. and, and was was something that, you know, it wasn't such a prevalent thing or perhaps it was something that we expected pop stars to have or film stars to have because they become a bit more removed from their actual selves. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like everybody's a rock star these days. That's sort of how it feels with, with social media, isn't it? I was in a taxi yesterday and I saw some street art that said, stop making stupid people famous. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the and top I and bottom of it, it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> then again, you know, I'm, I'm still I'm still sitting here and hoping that my profile increases slightly. Um, <laughs> and you know, but this is the thing: what, how can we? What little things can we do to affect that? Especially, for instance, if we've got children ourselves, mm-hmm. children who are you know who don't know anything other than the social media world in which we live. They've had no experience of anything else. Are there things that parents can do, for instance, mm-hmm. to safeguard or to at least? make some inroads into the you know the, the concept that the children might not become solipsistic self-aggrandizing idiots absolutely that is what we should all strive for as a as a species <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a very interesting study that I actually think provides very useful guidance um, you know this idea that that every child is a winner every child deserves a ribbon regardless of how they actually performed is truly dangerous. Um, and, and it's not that we want to detract fr- from their sense of self-worth, but there is some research showing that parents who focus on love and warmth towards their children, rather than telling them how special they are, tend to have more mature, self-aware, well-adjusted kids. And that's what I love about that is it's not telling us that we need to you know, berate or belittle mm. them. I mean, that's the opposite of what we want to do. But w- what we also don't want to do is um, puff them up or, or, or bolster their sense of self in a way that's going to be unhealthy for them. Mm. So if anything, it's helping them find the things that they truly are gifted at, um, but, but overall have that sense of warmth and love uh, as a parenting tool. It's because it is a fine line, isn't it? Especially mm-hmm. as a parent, you, you, I find myself doing it all the time. And I always, I never thought that I thought of myself as a molly coddling type of a parent. But your instinct is always if, yeah. if a child comes third in a race or something like that, is to, and that you know, you can see that they're a bit concerned about their performance. You, your instinct is always to really big them up, isn't yeah. it? No, you're absolutely brilliant at it, Donnie. You're fantastic. <laughs> you're a wonderful mathematician. You know, sometimes empirically, they're just not, are they? So, it, it, but it's, you, you still want them to, to have that warm and fuzzy feeling, but is that, that's the way to do it, I take it. Yeah, it's to just, say, I, I love you so much and I'm so proud of you. You don't have to be the top of every single sort of, uh, you know, sort of pile, do you really? Right, that's right. the thing. And it's sort of like the analogy I use a lot is like refined sugar. Um, you know, if we give that to them, it's going to feel great for both of us in the moment. Um, you are the best ball player, even though you came in third place. But it, it it's not good in the long term. It's not good for them, most yeah. importantly. And it's also not good um, just for your sort of long-term parenting approach. And one, I'm trying to remember the name, Gallison, Garrison Keller, is it? Uh, I can't remember quite the name of yep, the... Yep, that's, that's him. That's a brilliant example, and that, that radio program from America is brilliant. I used to listen to that quite a lot. But the idea that, you know, every child in the school is above average, it's just the, the, the non-sequitur within that, you know, that kind of is modern parenting in a nutshell, though, isn't it? It is. It's statistically impossible, uh, and yet it's something <laughs> that so many of us believe. It's, well, and, and it does take me back to that idea that certainly amongst the chattering classes where I live, uh, past the parcel used to be a, a, a game of some peril when you were a child. You know, mm-hmm. am I going to get 
the big prize. And there's a, there's a present on every layer now. Actually, it, doesn't just, it completely destroys the point, really, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. Because then, I mean, if you think about it, it takes away the joy and the, the self-esteem boost when you actually do win and yeah. when you are the best. And, you know, not that we should always be chasing that, but I think um, it, it dilutes a lot of things the way we're, we're yeah. approaching it now. But, I mean, doesn't everybody think that they're self-aware, though? Is that not the, the issue here? That we, you know, to some degree, we all believe that we've got a handle on, on who we really are. Is it, how do we test ourselves to find out how deluded we are? Well, let me first give you uh, two data points that I find stunning and chilling and quite motivating. So my research has shown that 95% of people believe that they're self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% actually are. I'm in that 10 to 15%. <laughs> of course, I so am I. I absolutely know it. <laughs> Is that really true? It is. Um, and isn't it? and really, there are so many things, even just hardwired in human beings, that make it very difficult for us to see ourselves clearly. So it's not that we're all a bunch of morons. It's just that the way we are built and the way we sort of interact with our world, this this whole cult of self movement mm. makes it very difficult. And what so many people assume wrongly is, well, you know, if I just live long enough and have enough experience, I will get more wisdom and self-knowledge. And very strangely, I found that there is no association between age and self-awareness. So there's good and bad about that. The good is almost anyone, if they do the work, can get there. Mm. It doesn't matter what age they are. But the bad news is um, if we just sit around and wait for that insight to come, uh, we, we may remain delusional for the rest of our lives. Oh, great. That's fantastic <laughs> to read. Because that's just feeding into what you've just said. Mm -hmm. It's it, from what's, what you mentioned in the book that self-awareness and it is kind of counterintuitive, increases between the age of about 25 and 35, but then it kind of tails off. And as you say, you kind of expect to become this kind of, you know, relatively wise, uh, you know, elder statesman mm -hmm. sitting on a mountain as you get older and everybody coming to you with, with, you know, asking for your pearls of wisdom. Why does that not happen then? Is it, if, for instance, if you're in a role for 10 or 15 years, mm -hmm. is it that complacency kicks in? Is that what the problem is? I think it is. Um, you know, there's a uh, sort of, so many ways to explain that, but I think probably the biggest reason is once we've been doing something for a long time, whether it's a certain job, um, whether it's being in a, a relationship with someone, or whether it's just being on earth, you know, we, we assume that since we're doing it and showing up every day that wisdom will follow. And I think it, the antidote to that is actually very easy, which is to question those assumptions, to say something like, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm amazing at my job, but what if I'm not? What are the things that I could do to help myself improve? And what we found, um, my research team and I, when we're studying these people like Steve, um, who made dramatic transformations in their level of improvement, is they're always asking those questions. And they're not asking them in a self-loathing way, mm. but they're asking it in a curious way. And, and sort of every day they're waking up and, and trying to see themselves as clearly as possible, uh, their gifts, their strengths, as well as maybe those areas that they could improve. Sounds pretty exhausting though, Tasha. I quite like complacency. Oh, That's it's so much like easier, isn't it? <laughs> it really feels a lot easier, a lot less energy. But you mentioned the, the idea of, of running a situation and viewing it how others might have seen it. So mm -hmm. if there's a confrontation at work, for mm -hmm. instance, obviously the first thing that you do is you see it from your perspective and you think that other person's an idiot or they're an aggressive fool. What is what you're suggesting? However difficult it is, you have to try and sit there and see what they might have seen. Exactly. I think that's a, such an easy 
tool to use right away. It, there's a um, I, I talk about a tool in the book developed by another psychologist called Zoom In, Zoom Out. So when you're in a emotionally charged situation or when you're just facing some kind of an obstacle, what the recommendation is is to first zoom in and say, what am I feeling right now? Mm. You know, I'm I'm upset or I'm mad or I'm scared. But then the second step, which almost none of us do, is to imagine the situation from that other person's perspective. And I talk about a, a story of mine where I was trying to get from Denver, Colorado to Hong Kong and they canceled the flight and, you know, there's 300 angry passengers yelling at these three customer service agents that are trying to get us rebooked. And w- what I found when I've used that tool is it, it just gives us a little reminder that we're not, in mm. fact, the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be a really powerful way to just be more aware of the world that yeah. we're in. You might not be the center of the universe, Tasha, but I certainly am. I know, so, I know. That's why I'm so lucky to be why here. why you understand your perspective <laughs> in it all. But that's it. it. It is so difficult to do that, isn't it? You met, you met In your introduction there, you used the word oblivious mm-hmm. and the phrase Steve used, you know, nobody told me I was like this. This is, I guess, it's the fulcrum of the whole book though, isn't it? Is That's where we all spend a lot of our time, don't we? Just, it's a solipsistic craziness of our own existences. Is, is that the... One of the major messages of the book, really, is to just try and be a little bit more zen about it, to try and have an out-of-body experience mm. and see ourselves from other people's perspective. Is, this, is there something very practical we can do about that as far as getting that insight? I think there is. And, you know, self-awareness isn't just that, but I think so many of us have room for improvement that... Um, making the decision today that I'm going to try a little bit harder to see myself the way others see me or to at least look at other perspectives besides my own, it's so powerful. Mm. And what I talk about in the book is that that doesn't always tell us that we're awful. Often it tells us of amazing strengths that we have that we never even knew. I, I tell so many stories in the book that are that are affirming and confidence building and um, I think getting that information is so powerful. But even when it isn't what we want to hear, it's important to know. It doesn't mean that we have to change ourselves to suit the way other people see us or, or anything like that. But I think knowledge is power. And we can change ourselves. We can change the perception. Or we can decide to just accept that with compassion and maybe be a little bit more open about it. Yeah, know, know, know your limitations and know the things that you're not particularly good at, your mm-hmm. strengths and your weaknesses, I suppose. But I like, it's an interesting idea that, because you're, you're kind of always, I would imagine you'd be always bracing yourself for bad news yes. if you're looking from other people's perspectives. But one of the things that the message of the book is, like you've just said, that can be really empowering and pleasant, can't it? You can, oh my God, and it can boost your own confidence to find that you're actually better at certain things that you, you actually thought you were. It's incredible. And, and frankly, so I, t- I talk about a tool in the book called The Dinner of Truth, where you find someone who you love very much or um, you, you've worked with for a long time and you really respect, and you take them out to dinner and you ask them, what is the thing I do that's most annoying to you? <laughs> oh, God. Then you listen. <laughs> And the first time I heard of this exercise, it was developed by a professor in the U.S. named Josh Meisner, um, brilliant guy. I thought, that sounds like the worst idea ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a self-awareness would... <laughs> researcher. It's horrible. But I, I didn't put anything in my book that I hadn't tried myself multiple times. Okay. And what I found is when I had these conversations, um, usually it was something that was very controllable on my end. 
And the conversation ended up being very affirming and very positive. And so even when we're getting that information that we just don't love about ourselves, if we're getting it from people we trust and people who are honest with us, even that can be quite positive overall. It does sound utterly terrifying, uh, literally like jumping out of a capsule on the edge of space. Right. But I suppose th- there are great rewards, though, waiting for us if we do it, is what you're saying. Absolutely. You know, if, if I, I'll just be really honest and vulnerable. Um, one of the conversations that I had, um, my, my friend who's about 10 years older than me said, um, I love you in person, but I really hate you on social media. <laughs> <laughs> and God. I said, oh, my God, because, you know, if you're an author and a speaker and you have to build your platform and and I was sort of uh, doing it in more of a tone deaf way than I yeah. thought. Um, and, and that was such good data for me. And I it, that was an indictment of who I am. Yeah. It was a behavior that he saw that was limiting me. And the good news is I was able to, you know, hopefully do something about it and okay. try to improve. Um, so there's something really, um, I don't know, just positive and affirming about that. Well, uh, Tasha and I are about to now go and have some dinner and she's going to tell me seven or eight things about myself that I don't want to hear. <laughs> and I'm very much looking forward to it, actually. It'd be an empowering experience. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Tasha. That thank was really you. brilliant. Uh, that was Dr. Tasha Urick, whose book Insight is now available as hardback, ebook, and audiobook from all good and disreputable retailers. The audiobook read by Tasha is also available now as an audio download from audible.co.uk. Right, I'm off to have a long go. Look at myself. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>